this podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. And uh, we are so thrilled that you could join us. This one is called Buried Bodies. This is about the people who know where all the, the bodies are buried because they help bury them. Good help is another another way that most people think of, of good help. We think of them as people who know where all the, the bodies are buried. Um when you know when, when when you're making movies and TV show, it's never true, never more true than that. Good help is can sometimes be hard to find. Uh, a great personal assistant, a, a great assistant who who can think along with you is 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 what you look for. And we were very fortunate because we found not a good assistant, but really the best assistant. I mean, you really want someone who not only covers you up and covers the issues that you may have missed up along the way, but also can add to and suggest and almost become a partner in the crime itself. And that's who Ed Tapia became. Yeah. When, when, before Ed joined, it's funny, as we were talking to Ed in, in, in the little pre-show that we do to, so we figure out what we're going to be talking about. Ed reminded us that he, he joined it in season after season five. Well, yeah, much later into the process than either of us remembered. I, I don't remember doing Tales without Ed. Yeah, and, and you know, nothing could be more really telling about how a person fits in than you can't imagine a history of it without them, even though there was one. Uh, we both had had yeah, good assistance before then. I don't recall, you know, otherwise we would have done something about it. But when, when suddenly Ed Tapia, when, when we crossed paths with Ed Tapia, uh, it wasn't just an assistant; it, it was a member of the team. Very much so. Well, geez, let's 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 quit blowing smoke up Ed's ass. Yeah, let's get him in here so we can t- tear him apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, Ed Tapia, um, Ed, welcome. Thank now, you. Uh, before we get going, I, we should also point out that not only was Ed just the, the most amazing member of of the team back in the day, in 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 the subsequent in subsequent years, Ed is now a a very terrific producer in in his own right. Uh, you uh, you were a producer on Everyone's All American. Now you're on uh, Everyone's All American. All American Homecoming. Homecoming, right, right, right. Yeah. And you're going into what season of that? We the mothership is going to season five, which I did for the first three years, and right. the spinoff is in uh, its twelfth episode of season two, and we are the uh, second rated show on CW. So we're doing well. We're doing well. So you know, Ed is Ed is a very much a, a producer in his own right. We'll get to that. We've leapt to the end of the story. God, what is wrong with what is wrong with me? Oh. I'm glad you finally agreed with me, Alan. I've been saying that about you for years. Thank you. <laughs> And I want to say, just to bring back to the very beginning, that I wouldn't have the career I had if not for you, too. I mean, I, I genuinely, the stuff that you guys taught me and the stuff that I learned from the team around you, I think, is what has allowed me to go on to, you know, a little bit of success down the road. 
um, and from from very lucky beginnings. Success? Yeah. Uh, let's let's start at the very beginning. A, a very good place to start. Just before we get to that, just Alan, I've got a question for you. Um, Go. Ed, you, you can you can just uh, t- yawn for a minute. So, has Ed sent you any royalty checks since since we worked together on the stuff he's made? No, never mind. Let's go back. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, all right. I we've talked about how you came to us. We'll 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 revisit that in a second. But where where'd you come from, Ed? You're 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 an Angelino, aren't you? Yeah, I was actually uh, I was born here in L.A. I uh, grew up in Highland Park. Well, actually, I was born I was born at Queen of Angels Hospital, and you know, right off the Hollywood Freeway. Huh. And uh, my mom sent me to New York when I was really young, like six months old. And I lived with my grandma in New York City till I was about five. I'd go back and forth. Uh, you know, my my mom would come out and visit. I uh, my grandma would bring me back to L.A. Mm-hmm. And around six years old, I came back to L.A. full time. My mom was finished with school. She was working. And uh, what was your mom studying? She was she was studying fashion and she ended up uh, being a uh, pattern maker Hmm. for a company called Robin Hill Sportswear in the uh, Hmm. mid 60s, you know, early 70s. And uh, it was funny because, uh, you know, I didn't realize how poor we were until I I was kind of a a teenager, you know, because everybody in my neighborhood was kind of, you know, lower you know, lower middle class, upper lower class, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure, and, sure. You know, my mom and my grandma did a really good job of hiding the fact that we were eating chicken chicken and rice pretty much every day, just because it was cooked differently, you know? You get the whole chicken and you cut it up and use every piece of it and rice and, you know, beans or potatoes. And so, and everybody I knew was like that. So I remember going to, um, you know, when I was finally in high school, we went to some of these other schools and saw kids driving around BMWs. I was like... What is this world? Mm-hmm. You know, because we didn't travel much. You know, didn't didn't have we didn't have much, and but everybody didn't have much, so it was normal. Mm-hmm. And I, I I went to see American Graffiti when I was thirteen at the Highland Park Cinema, and came out of that movie saying I want to do this for a living. Had mm-hmm. no idea how, no idea what they did, what you know what was going on. I was thirteen. I was in the eighth grade. What what was it about American Graffiti that 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 seized your creative soul? A world that I didn't know existed. The cars, the the fashion, the the uh, the cruising, the music. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 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 that part of the early seventies, the fifties were a big deal. You know, we were having sock hops. You know, in junior high school and high school, and it was a recreation of that. You know, and a few years later, Greece came out, and it you know, American Feed just grabbed me for some reason. I was already a film geek. You know, I was already watching movies that I really wasn't prepared well, or shouldn't be watching. Well, you know, okay, let, let, let's 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 take a pin in this then. Yeah. What is all right? So you were already a film geek, okay? Yeah. What was, yeah. What was the first movie that that suddenly? All right. What was the what's the first movie you remember seeing? The first movie I remember seeing, I closed my eyes, and in the, the climactic moment, it was Bonnie and Clyde. My mom took me to the Highland Park Cinema. And how like, old mm-hmm. How old were you when you saw Bonnie and Clyde? Eight. It was nineteen sixty eight, I think, or sixty nine. I was either eight or nine. nine. And my mom used to my mom used to drop my sister off uh, at the Highland Park uh, Cinema on Saturday mornings. And back then you'd be the double feature. And in between the double features, there'd be uh, raffles and, you know, sometimes the vaudeville act. There'd be like a comedian or something, really? you know, and then there'd be a first movie. Then there'd be a, like half an hour. Then there'd be a second movie. My mom would drop us off at 11 and pick us up at five and we'd be there all day, you know, out of her hair. 
Wow. You know, and so I remember, you know, and then I fell in love with movies, the kid movies, and then started sneaking in, you know, to the to the older movies. And in my in my mid-teens, I would go to the Eagle Rock uh, Plaza where they had four cinemas, each of them showing two movies. I'd get there at 11 in the morning, buy a ticket for the 7 p.m. show, walk in. They would just tear my ticket, wouldn't even look at it. And I would just pick the six, three movies I would watch all day, ending up with the one I bought the ticket for at 7 p.m. Wow. You you were a bigger film geek than I ever was. So that, I would yeah, yeah all, all day Saturday I was in the movies. You know I was either I was either playing sports or watching movies, and so I was watching the conversation, the sting, um, um, three days of the condor. You know all those great that that yeah, yeah. great period in the early seventies. You know leading up to the Godfather and you know all all those movies over and over and over again. I'd sometimes watch. Then I'd go back, you know, if there was a great movie. I mean, I can I can quote lines from Three Days of the Condor to this day because I saw it so much back in the day. Sure, sure. You know, all of those movies you mentioned were really, really good movies. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not sure that's com comparable today. If, if a young kid were looking to be in the film business, going to movies every day, I wonder if he'd be able to find the quality of those kinds of movies today. Well, not only that, but I remember reading recently that if The Godfather were made today, it'd be 12 episodes on Apple TV or Amazon. It wouldn't be a feature, you know, because nowadays the, everything has been so stretched out that yeah. I mean, and it makes sense to a certain degree because you can tell the story in much more, um, it much would deeper. Be, it would be better serialized. Right. Because right. you could really, wow, I mean, really... In, in essence, that's what, what Coppola did. If you look at one and two as as a, yeah. as a, as a grand story, three you have no use for. But right. but but really, it it kind of an, anticipates serialization in a way. Right. When, when, right. When, they, when they cut it up later and and they began to to put to think of them as as a grand opus. Right. And think of how many movies you know in in the eighties and nineties were a two hour theatrical release with a four and a half hour director's cut. Yeah. Sometimes oh. which were better. You know, which were better, sure, you know, sure. yeah, because they, they put in all the nuance and all the stuff you'd have to cut down to get it to two and a half hours. It's true. The, the audience was was kind of was already there uh, ahead of the the content providers. The, mm -hmm. the content consumers wanted bigger, longer, deeper storytelling. So I, I, it shouldn't have been shocking in any way, shape or form when, when, when the Netflix showed up and said, hey, all you can eat whenever you want. And then, you know, from there, you know, I decided I wanted to do this, but being a kid in Highland Park where, you know, 60% are, are, are Latino and very much everything was Catholic driven. And it's like the rule was find a work at the phone company, the gas company, the post office, good yeah. benefits, you know, a, a place where you'll grow and have a pension. Yeah, I didn't want any of that. I wanted to make movies or TV. Hmm. And as I got a little older, I realized I like television more than I like features. You know, just in terms of um, the the production side of it, when when I started learning, and I, I went to work at I went to work at a flower shop when I was in junior college, and I was delivering flowers in a delivery van, and I loved the job because I couldn't afford a car, but they let me take the delivery van home every day. And the flower shop had five different drivers, and we were all given a route for the specific day. And once we finished the route, we can go home. Well, if you were on the West LA route, you invariably had to go to Sony. Not to, it was MGM back then, Culver Studios, mm. 20th Century Fox. If you had the Hollywood run, you'd invariably have to go to Paramount, KTLA, the old KGTV, Raleigh mm. Studios. Mm -hmm. If you had the Valley run, you were at Disney, you were at Warner Brothers. So I would sneak onto sets 
I would make my delivery and then sneak onto a set and just watch. And, you know, back then the security wasn't that big. If you were on the lot, they didn't care where you went. Yeah. I remember walking onto the set of the love boat and watching for, you know, 45 minutes and Charlie's angels. And, you know, a lot of these great shows, I would just walk in, pretend I would go to craft service, pretend like I belong there. And they would just let me do my thing, you know? You know, this is this is such an important lesson to all you kids out there. <laughs> when it re- real, but really and truly, it is. It's uh, it's in in uh, on on. Some of us would would refer to that as chutzpah. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it really is. It's an it's such a vital component uh, of how to how to break into this this insane business. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much of that is available today any longer. I mean, I used to do that on Broadway. I was, uh, I used to see the second act of a show because when you, after the first act, they break, everybody goes outside. I would be outside waiting. And when I did the exact same thing, Gil. I did the exact same thing in New York. Exactly. So I used to see all the second acts and people would say to me, well, how, how how was the play? And I'd say, well, I really can't tell you how the play was. I can tell you how the second act was. And occasionally I'd get caught, you know, they they would, they would, the best ones were the, th- the three act plays were the best because then you'd see the second and the third act. Right, that's right. But I you mean, know, you, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think there are different ways to channel that audacity. But but that is but it's that audacity. You know, it's it's the fact that you did that, Gil, and the fact that you did that, Ed. But this is this. You know, it's outside the box thinking. Yeah, and it's also you know the it was also I mean it's so funny how things work out because. I was also delivering to some of the biggest names in Hollywood. My wow. first tip ever um, working for the flower shop, delivering flowers, I had to deliver. Um, Johnny Carson had a standing order. You know, his wife got, you know, two dozen roses every Monday and every Friday. Hmm. And um, my first tip was Johnny Carson basically handing me 50 bucks, you know, and I was like, I, I, mind blown. You oh, know, yeah. we later, Diane Carroll, you know, gave me like 25 bucks. And like my first two tips were these, these iconic people. And I was going to see homes and 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 um, residences that I I couldn't even imagine. I mean, it might as well have been Mars. You know, seeing Johnny Carson's Malibu Estate the first time, I, they invited me in to put it on a table, and I was just I was walking around thinking, this guy must be the richest guy in the world. And you realize later, there's people that have much more. You know, it was just again, it was just uh, eye opening and a very very um, endearing way for somebody who who loved the business. And, at this, and I was also run, having to deliver to these people sometimes in their trailers. I'd get a, we'd get a delivery for you know Lauren Hughes uh, on on Love Boat, and I'd I'd go on the studio a lot, and I'd find the production. I'd say, oh yeah, just take it out to her in her trailer. That would never happen today, but they would just guide me to, and I, I would meet all these people, and I I tell my mom, and she was like, oh my god, did you get a picture? Did you get a picture? You know, long before cell phones and selfies, that was always her question. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> What was your what was your first gig in in the biz? Um, again, ties back to the ties back to the uh, the flower shop. Um, going on the, on the various studio lots and television companies, they had job boards, the old job board, the bulletin board, and every lot I would go to, I would go to the job board and I would look for anything that was entry level, literally anything. Mm-hmm. And I had my little fake resume that I had made up. And um, I, I'd send in, I sent an application, you know, I, I remember applying for um, a, a, they literally called it a gopher job for KHJ, KHJ Channel 9. Mm-hmm. I applied at uh, CBS, NBC, um, Disney, 
And ultimately, I applied for a job at ABC Television um, in Prospect for a photo clerk in the photo department. I was 21 years old. Mm. And I got a, I got a call from uh, an HR guy named Doug Rodatori, who I will love forever because he called me in and he had a very, he had a very, very uh, almost uptight voice. I mean, uh, my Doug Rodatori is like, oh, uh, Ed, this is a Doug Rodatori from ABC personnel. We'd uh, like to know if you'd like to come in for uh, an interview. And I went, I went in and I met with Doug and he was really nice. And uh, he, you know, I told him, I said, I don't have any experience. I, I like to think I'm pretty sharp. I can learn. And the job was basically cataloging and organizing all of the stills, um, black and white stills and color slides that came in from the network still photographers. And I must have done okay because they offered me a second interview to go meet with Hal Garb, who I recently reconnected with. He's in his 80s. He's still running. He was a marathoner back then. Mm -hmm. And um, Hal interviewed me and I get a call from Doug. And again, that same voice, like, um, Ed, um, we'd like to offer you the position of photo clerk, too, at the starting rate of $317 a week with full benefits. Are you interested? Something in my brain made me say, you know what? I got to think about it. <laughs> and I don't know what possessed me to say I got to think about it. But I told him that. And I waited like six hours and then called him back, said, yeah, I, I think I'd like the job. And in, in, they, they gave me all the packages. They told me to come down to, uh, to their, uh, the HR office on Prospect, even though the job was going to be in Century City. Mm -hmm. And I filled out all the paperwork, and I, they told me I'd start the following Monday. Well, they also told me that I had to wear a suit to work every day, and I didn't own a suit. <laughs> oh, 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 that kind of job. So, and back then, everybody, yeah. everybody at the corporation, at the corporate level, wore suits back then. You know, this is 1981. Everybody was in a suit and tie. And fortunately, my best friend, Mark Alvarado, his cousin owned a clothing store called Model Men's in Highland Park. And he goes, hook, I'll hook you up with my cousin. Just go see him. So I went down there. He gave me three suits on layaway that I could mix and match. And so the three suits lasted me like a year and a half, just mixing and matching different shirts, one pair of you know, pants with a different jacket. And uh, around 1984, the dress code finally eased up and we could wear sweaters and we could wear, you know, sports coats as opposed to suits. But it was, it was, and, and when I got to ABC, it was crazy because I didn't realize that anybody that wanted stills from episodes they were in had to come to me. So suddenly I was getting calls from the assistants of Henry Winkler, Robert Wagner, um, Farrah Fawcett, Lee Majors, right. you know, Robert Guillaume, they were all calling me and sometimes it was them themselves. Hey, you were like, strangely oh, hooked in. Yeah. They, they, would, they, would, they would call me and say, hey, I want to come in and see the stills from that episode we did two weeks ago. And so, you know, we also had ABC Motion Pictures at the time, and we were doing Pritzi's Honor, and we were doing Silkwood. So, you know, I'd have to deal with the managers or agents for, you know, um, 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 Meryl Streep and Kurt Russell, you mm -hmm. know. And it was just, for, for a kid like me, at 22, 23, having to go to these people's homes and do photo approvals with them. You know, I remember having, I'm 23 years old, I'm going to Farrah Fawcett's office and sitting with her as she goes through stills. Yeah. yeah. All, all the while I'm thinking, I'm sitting with Farrah Fawcett, I'm sitting with Farrah Fawcett, I'm sitting with Farrah Fawcett. It, it's funny, in, in, in our last episode, Gil and I talked about the first episodes that we 
produced of Tales from the Crypt was the trap that Michael J. Fox directed. And uh, the, the um, I, I'm not a star fucker. Mm-hmm. I, I guess meeting famous people is one thing, but I, working with them to me is much more, that's mm-hmm. much more appealing. And to suddenly my first real, mm, all right, let's, let's get to work after just, you know, doing story editor stuff was to go and sit with Michael J. Fox at, at his bungalow at the, the hotel at the end of the, the Sunset Strip to go over his directing notes for the episode he was going to direct the first time he was ever directing. And strangely, I, I felt very verklempt about it. Uh, it was, I, I, walking in that room the first time, it was, yes, it was rather heady. I, 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 I found myself pulling the camera back constantly going, you're having a meeting with Michael J. Fox. You're having a meeting with Michael J. Fox. You know, like 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 Chicken Little running around the room. He couldn't see it. Thank goodness he could not see. You know, the little Chicken Little in my head running around going. Hey. It's like stupid. Shut up already. But no, and what's one of the things though that I really loved about both you and Gil in that you know going to your homes. Um, I I never saw those those photos of you with an actor. You know, you go into some people's homes and every photo in their home is them with somebody. And that's only there to impress everybody who shows up. That shit doesn't matter to me. And never has, I don't have any photos with any actors anywhere in my house because to me they're just coworkers for the most part. The the, the thing that cured me that was wonderful was that uh, as I was having as the chicken was running around my head, Michael J. Fox and I got down to work, and suddenly Michael J. Fox stopped being a guy who was you know light years beyond me in terms of the the, the pecking order. He was a coworker on, on, on a project. Yeah. And yeah. he needed my help. Right. And, uh, right. and so suddenly, th- this is the great equalizer. Right. And we were all in this together, pulling the same cart toward the same destination. And damn, if if that right. doesn't just teach you everything you need to know, we're, we're all yeah. in this together. You know, that, that old saying, you know, never meet your heroes. Um, for the most part, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate because there's a lot of people that I've greatly respected that and enjoyed and and I got to know them later when I worked with them and um the one that comes to mind is Timothy Hutton uh, when I was in Austin doing American Crime you know uh the first um the second season of American Crime uh Timothy and I got to know each other pretty well because it turns out we're both basketball fans so every free moment we were playing hoops together you know and he and I as the two old guys would take on the young kids <laughs> and I remember him from you know being a huge fan back from ordinary people you know, oh. that performance blew me away. It was, again, one of those movies that just made me say, I want to do a movie like that. <laughs> and then getting to know Timothy and, and him being such a nice guy. I mean, no offense, Tim. I still don't have a picture of us together, and that's okay. <laughs> but I have I have the, you know, the memory of working together and and seeing his process and respecting it and seeing how good he was. Um, you know, I've been really you know, lucky to like work with. I, I, I will say in retrospect, I, I wish I had taken a few more pictures. <laughs> But that's only in retrospect, uh, you know, what are you going to tell a young, dumb kid like 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 me? Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, working with the people that we've gotten to work with has been one of the spectacular graces of 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 getting to do what we do to make a buck. Right, right. And and then after five years at ABC television, I realized, you know, in after about two years, I'd started applying for a lot of jobs within the company 
development jobs, production jobs, and I couldn't I couldn't get any. I, for whatever reason, I couldn't. And my my boss Hal finally said to me, he goes, Ed, sometimes you know, an expert is somebody from out of town. I said, what do you mean? He goes, people look at you a certain way here. You may have to leave to come back. And that's always stuck with me that you see often very qualified people overlooked by their own companies. And yet they go off to another job and hire a company hires them back a year later at a much higher position with, for a lot more money because they went off to, you know, CBS and did something for a year. And even though they were there right under your nose, they're, they're just overlooked for somebody. And I'll never forget Hal's, Hal's comment. An expert is somebody from out of town. And uh, it, it stuck with me. And so I quit, I quit with no job to go to. And, um, that was probably the last time I had a normal job huh. in terms of, you know, that was, that was somewhat corporate, even though it was entertainment Yeah, yeah. and started the world of freelance work. You know, I, I went to work at Interscope shortly thereafter. I became their story editor. I got to oversee, um, you know, basically all the submissions, you know, I, I handled uh, like 10 freelance readers. And after two years, it was the same thing. There was no place for me to go. It was a great company. I loved Robert Gord, Dave Madden, um, all of them. They were, they were good people. And we were, doing a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, but there was no place for me to grow and no place to learn. So again, I went off and did, you know, freelance stuff. And I kept doing that until ultimately Victoria Burroughs, the wonderful casting director that you all interviewed, called me and said, hey, the Tales from the Crypt guys are looking for an assistant. Are you interested? I'm like, hell yes. That's funny. <clears throat> the, 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 the timing was, was perfect. I was temping at MGM for the VP of legal affairs. I was a temp, oh. remember temps? <laughs> Do they still have temp agencies? I, I, I work as a temp, I, I work as a, as a word processor. Yeah, so I was temping for the, uh, I was an assistant to the VP of legal affairs at MGM when, oh, when that, when that French guy tried to take it over and they were they were they were shrinking the company and they were coming out of bankruptcy. Oh right, right. You know, it was during that time. It was like it had to be like 93, 94. And um, nope, we lost go. No. All right. Well we'll we'll press on for the second. Okay. And so um yeah, and and we, I was miserable, but they actually paid pretty damn well. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, at the time, you know, minimum wage was like, I don't know, six bucks an hour, and they were paying like 13, you know, and because I was working for a B VP, there was like two extra dollars an hour, you know, and, and I was tempting, I was hating it. I was just writing shitty legal memos all day long, you know, and the, the woman I worked for was very nice. And, um, she, sorry, but, but, but at least you were temping within the business. You were temping for MGM. Yes. Yes. I only worked for, um, for temp agencies within the business and okay, I, I did several of those. I I did a lot of temping the when when I got Tales from the Crypt, I was had been working for almost a year on, on a temp gig for Occidental Petroleum in their corporate communications department. Oh boy. And on the one hand, you know, yeah, I had to put on a a shirt and tie every day, which is so not me. <laughs> it is. But we had a, a great relationship. I really liked it. First of all, hey, steady income. The communications people were at least the the one creative department in the whole stinking joint. Right. Um, it was a fascinating place to be because you know, Armand Hammer is an interesting guy. They were just building the museum at that point. It was a really interesting time to 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 be inside that company. Uh 
but I was always a visitor right. to, yeah. to their world. That was, it was never a world that I was ever going to be. And I was, man, and we've, we've, of course, we've told the story of how Tales came to McGill and I, but yeah, I, I went from temping at, uh, at Oxy, Oxy Pete for a year to, to Tales from the Crypt. Wow. Wow. And so Victoria called me and, you know, I've known Victoria at that point for probably seven, eight years. We played softball together in the entertainment league and uh, I trusted her and she said, you guys were good guys. And so terrible judge of character. (laughs) And I don't know what you guys remember uh, about the very first meeting, but what I remember is that you guys could not stop joking. You guys were just riffing off of each other and i was just like we were just assholes are these two guys what a couple of schmucks <laughs> <laughs> no not, not a couple of schmucks but you guys were just you could tell that there was a um you almost finished each other's sentences sometimes but really in a joking annoying, manner, isn't it you know in a jokey manner and um and and you guys were at those offices i forget what the, you know um what they were called but um it wasn't Sunset Gower, but it was down there, kind of in that area. Yeah, Antiquarius. Was it at the Antiquarius? On um, wherever George Burns was. That's where oh, I met. Oh yeah, it, it was. Uh, it was that. It was called the Hollywood Studios. Hollywood Studio. Okay, and um, we uh, we we had a good first meeting, and then uh, you, you you guys said, oh, "We'll let you know. We'll let you know." And I waited around for like two days, and then you called me and said, "Yeah, will you take this much money?" And I think it was five hundred bucks a week. I'm like, "Absolutely, I'm there when you need me." And only later did, did Gil tell me that you guys only had th- like three weeks in the budget for me. <laughs> hey, you know, winging a prayer. Cause you guys, yeah, because you guys were in post-production at that point. Yeah. You know, you didn't know what your next job was going to be. And you guys were pitching like crazy. Yeah, you know, we, we, your we were. Your agent, you know, um, Alan Kassir, I was on the phone with him like five times a day because he was setting up meetings and you guys were pitching all over town. And I think, you, had, you had all these filmmakers coming in. I think, you know, there was a, a little patch there where we, William Morris had us in development, working with projects uh, on projects with Stan Lee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I so remember Mr. Lee coming in the office. Right. So we, 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 we met with, we met with Stan uh, a bunch of times on a project that Stan brought to us uh that he you know stan had a bunch of stuff in in his head that 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 he didn't have time to to work on but he was looking for creative partners he was represented by william morris so were we and so they stuck us all in a room together and among the the couple of things that 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 stan lee had that that wanted to 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 uh you know somehow develop if he could but he didn't want to do it himself he wanted other people to you know to do the heavy lifting for him and that's where we came in. And he had a, it was not one of Stan's best ideas. Probably wasn't even one of his better ideas. And it probably wasn't even a very good idea. <laughs> Actually, it was, it was kind of pedestrian, you know. And I, hey, it was Stan Lee. And, yeah. and it was even then, even before Stan Lee really became the, the legend, he was still, he was still Stan Lee. And it was, it was great fun to, to work with him, to, uh, to sit in a room and, and, and and be creative and you know that, yeah, that improvising yes end i also remember um a lot of people were submitting stuff to you i was reading a bunch of scripts for you and and most of them were terrible <laughs> sorry <laughs> well hey that that comes with the territory it, it's i'm i'm glad you had to read them read all those scripts and i didn't and and i also i also remember initially um how 
how how per, uh, how seriously you guys took the post production. Um, you guys were in the editing room quite a bit and oh, and fixing gosh. episodes and gosh. on season five. You know, well, as as you know, one of the joys of television is that it's not director driven; it's writer producer driven. Yeah, and because it's writer producer driven, really, there's not one genius who's you know driving the bus, and so there, there's there's there are so many other ways for other people to contribute to to the final product. Um, I'm back, and all I heard was you talk. <laughs> Oh, it's it's uh it, it it must be difficult weather up in Canada today. That that, that is where, where where Gil is is uh is living these these days, and and so I'll 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 apologize here. Uh, why Gil keeps going in and out? It's we're we're having technical issues with Gil, but but Ed and I will press Talking on. About, hear me? Oh, Can okay. Me Hold on. Yeah, so, every time I think I'm connected, I I speak, and then I realize it goes out. All right. Yes, well, I am in Canada, and their internet sucks. <laughs> Well, I was making. I was making a when I first joined you guys, Gil. I was really um, impressed how seriously you guys took post production because up to that point, I hadn't been involved much in post. And you guys were constantly talking about the music. You were talking about, you know, is there? Um, and this is when visual effects was just starting out. You know, is there some way we can tweak this in post? Can we add a little more blood with the colorist? That sort of thing. Yeah. And um, the, I, I remember there were some days where you guys would have, you know, a meeting, a, a pitch meeting at ten a.m. You'd have a call, you know, with William Morris at noon, and then you'd be going off to the editing room and Alan would be writing something, preparing a pitch that you guys had. So for me, it was awesome because it was all these new things that I was, you know, getting to actually experience firsthand as opposed to just seeing it from the outside. It was my introduction to production because up to that point, I'd only done, you know, some PA work on a couple of features after I left Interscope and um, after I left uh, uh, ABC, I, I had done some freelance PA work. And some, uh, you know, non-union additional second AD work, that sort of thing. It's, and so it's way more fun it, inside, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've always thought so. You know, yeah. I mean, seeing how seeing how it's made, it was it was. I always say that Tales from the Crypt was my, both my master's and my PhD. That, that's the way I look at it because when you do a five day anthology show mm. where you have different actors, different costumes, different sets every five days with no um, opportunity to stretch it out or make it longer. You have to figure it out. There, there's no throwing money out of problem because no, um, that was that was never a solution. No, no. I mean, if we went over, we had to shorten something else to make it up. You know, and it was it was it was eye opening to see um, how many elements it took to to make a good show. Hmm. That that's that's the part that still people to this day don't understand. When people ask me what I do, you know, I say. I get to spend $60 million of the studio's money in five months. That's what <laughs> yeah. I have to do. How do you do that though? How do you do that? How do you do it efficiently uh, without going to 61 or 62 or 63 million? Because that's not acceptable. It's, it, it, it's, it's the high wire act. It, it, part of the appeal is, is having, is having a show that you're, that you're, that you're writing a show that you're prepping a show that you're shooting a show that you're posting. Yeah. And it really is to have all these deadlines happening in essence at the same time. Either this is this is unacceptable to you, or this is what makes you hum. And you know, th this is you have to be one of those people to look. There are people who do features for whom this is this is unacceptable. This yeah. is madness. 
uh, fewer and fewer of those people because there's no feature business anymore. Right. And and most, not most, I'd say a lot of filmmakers are choosing to go into the streaming world because of what we talked about earlier. You can tell a story in 10 or 12 hours as opposed to two. It's so rich. The storytelling environment and just you can go so many different places and you don't have to broadcast. You can much more narrow cast and ideas. You know, I think of uh, shows like uh, uh, Shtizzle uh, yeah. out of Israel, which I, I would never have watched a show like that. that right. I just but, finished I just finished a show on Netflix, a French show um, called Lupin. That was just amazing, just so yeah. well done. Yeah, yeah. And and I think you know what what would Game of Thrones have been like if George Martin had written that in 1985 as opposed to today? It would have been a three hour feature, and the good stuff in the book would have been left out. What what what's the South what, what's the South Korean show uh, that 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 went? Oh, through? Squid Game. Squid Game. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow! Yeah. yeah. I mean, this really has internationalized entertainment in a way really so much quicker than, yeah, we had, uh, you know, that single category at, at the Oscars every year where, you know, best foreign film, you know, the best handful of movies, this leaves that in its, in its wake. There's, mm -hmm. there's, and there's such a wide appetite for so much of what we do all over the world and so much, uh, so much desire here for what, what the rest of the world does. Right, right. And, you know, what's, what's funny is that we got, um, when when I had been working for you guys for like a month. Yeah. And we, you guys, you guys started talking about, you know, you, that's when you told me, unless we sold something, you know, we might have to do something else. And then I remember you guys were pitching like crazy. And then all of a sudden, forget, I don't remember the exact timeline, but we got an order for another season of Tales and the three Tales from the Crypt feature movies at the same time. And then all that happened, and we had to find new offices, and suddenly we were off and running. We we're off and running I, on Demon Night, I think. That, that's funny. I, it, it, it's as Gil and I said in the introduction. Our our memory is like there was no history before you, dude. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, I, I guess it, it does kind of feel like you arrived, and suddenly the shit got deep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. and then suddenly, suddenly it was like, oh, shit, we got all this work. Let's go. And then I found the offices in um, in in Studio City. We moved into that old Victorian building and we started prepping Demon Knight. And it was like, we're going to be shooting a feature in six weeks. That was such a cool building, the one in Studio City. Yeah, because and, and Joel held on to that for, for quite a while afterwards. Yeah, yeah, Jack, yeah. Jack, Jack took it over, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I remember thinking, wait a minute, what do you mean we're going to be doing a feature in six weeks? I mean, it was a five, five and a half week prep. And the old got FA on the on the phone and it started budgeting. And Stuart Burton was making all sorts of deals left and right. You got Greg Melvin on board. You got uh, um, that. That's that, that's funny. I, I I had forgotten that that when we got the order from from Universal, yeah, it, it was it, it wasn't a hey boys take your time. No, no, you know, was, go go uh, figure out a script that'll work for the franchise. Was was not the was not the uh, the marching order. Yeah, and 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 uh, I remember Gil and FA and Greg and you immediately started searching for space, and we couldn't find stages, so we ended up at the Van Nuys Airport, and um, that was uh, that was the, the movie that we're talking about is Demon Knight. So yeah, so Demon Knight. There was the the first thing that we were happening. We we were 
there were a bunch of scripts we were talking about for a little while. Oh, floating up in the air was was Quentin Tarantino's script uh, right. uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. Right. Uh, we had met with Quentin a bunch of times. Now, Quentin had sent that script to us to read. Right. And and he was at one point he was kind of begging us, make my movie, make my movie. And Kurtzman was going to direct. Bob Kurtzman was going to direct it. He was attached as a director at that point. Hmm. And the K and B boys were on 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 the on uh, on board already for all the visual uh, the uh, special effects makeup. They came they came with the script. Why didn't we do it? Oh, I've asked myself that many times. <laughs> I mean, we 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 that could have been the first four second tales from the crypt feature film. Yeah, I mean, um, I re- I remember. I remember there being some pushback with uh, Bob being the director and he didn't want to let go of it because he's the one that actually controlled the rights at that point, KMB did, because they were a relationship with Quentin. Mm-hmm. And um, that's my recollection. I don't don't know how accurate it is, but I remember there being some pushback with him attached as director. So there and was they a, that a complication that, that made it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, like, a, like a deal couldn't be made, you know, and um and William Morris and and Alan Kassirer at the time were really really pushing it, but I, I my recollection is that we couldn't make a deal because of um, because of Kurtzman's involvement. And it's funny because Bob ended up being a really good director, really good dude. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't. It's Gil. Do you remember why um, From Dust Till Dawn we didn't make? No, oh, we lost him again. So close, so far. Yeah. Uh, so yes, in in the end, we we didn't do that. Now, in addition to Demonite, was there anything else that 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 was a a strong contender for for the first Tales from the Crypt feature? Do, do you remember? Oh, um, for, I remember there being one that um, I forgot the writer, but the the writer that did that episode where the guys chop off their fingers, he had a script. Was, uh, um, the guys, was that Walter's episode? It was one of Walter's episodes. It was the writer of that. He had a feature, and I forgot his name. It was the one about the the guys who who were gambling. Yes, exactly. In that yeah. episode, he had a script that had a similar scene to it in 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 his movie. That's why I remember it. And uh, that was the other pretty strong contender at, at the time. And then I, I remember then Cy and Ethan's script was. Everyone kind of fell in love with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I I remember I remember you and Gil and Joel having a conversation where um, um, Joel basically said, "It's shootable. It's shootable. We can shoot this. We can shoot this fast. You know, we can get this. We can get this out." And- uh, it, it, it is important to to point out that that the <laughs> as we were setting up our film franchise, there are tales from the crypt. We were still chasing the clock. We were still looking for a, a shoot-ready script rather than than a script that that really represented the franchise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we were still there. Was still from 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 above, if I may be so bold, doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Well, they they saw it in their defense. I guess that they saw an opening. You know, the timing is now. They the Universal says do it now. If if, if we had gone and tried to develop the idea, I'm sure we, we'd have developed it right into the ground. As every, well, when I say us, I don't mean us. 
the development process between Joel's people and Dick's people and Bob's people, finding a consensus would have been virtually impossible going through the development process. And right, right. Politics. Oh, the politics. Yeah. And what I remember too is that we had a rough two weeks putting everything together. Um, and we had a really rough two weeks. Can you hear me, Gil? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, leading up to Demon Night, we had a rough two weeks after all the deals were closed because, no, I mean to close all the deals. Because I remember um, it was, you know, a closing earnest deal and then the casting process. But you guys you guys said, screw it, we're, we're moving forward. I remember once, once um, um, Gil, once UNFA and uh, Greg Melton decided on, was it Greg? Yeah, was Oh no, Greg! Uh, uh, the direct uh, Ernest wanted uh, uh, another guy. Um, oh yes, yes, I, I, yes, not Christian. Was it Christian? Yeah, Wagner? Christian Wagner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So once you, the three of you, decided on the uh, Van Nuys Airport, I mean, we were like building almost right away. I mean, the the plans came out fast, and I remember at one point, Gil's like, "We'll be shooting in four weeks. We're not pushing. We'll be shooting in four weeks." And I was thinking, I remember thinking. We haven't even seen a plan yet, <laughs> and we shot. We started shooting four weeks later. I mean, FA put that whole tense um, trailer city out there, mm -hmm. and and we we got got to shooting, and um, it was it was so. When when I joke about you know the stuff I learned, the the things that you guys were able to get ahead of, so that we actually start shooting. I mean, that's that's stuff stuff that I still look at today i mean in terms of getting the production designer involved early getting your pm involved early making sure you have the right crew making sure that the crew is somewhat cohesive one of my frustrations is um today is is some showrunners who don't understand how important that morale is to actually executing the rest of the work gotcha. it doesn't take many people to screw up a production you know you have if you have the wrong dp the wrong production designer the wrong first ad it's really hard to work around them and I, I, I joke that I'd rather have somebody with 90% of the skill and 100% of the attitude than the other way around. Because mm -hmm. that that one person that is somewhat of a pain in the ass will end up undermining your entire production. I think a lot of showrunners today don't realize how important that is. And I think they just feel like, well, I control the script and that's what's important. And the other people will have to just figure it out. As exactly. I deem. Exactly. 100%. And it's frustrating, um, you know, because those of us that have been doing it a long time, especially now that there's so many younger showrunners, it's it's uh, it's harder for some shows. I, I've been very fortunate that the showrunners I've worked for over the last five years are all very serious about um, not just doing good television, but doing good television while being fiscally responsible. Yes. You know, I, I, John Ridley insisted that we come in on budget on American Crime. The guy had just come off of an Oscar. Mm -hmm. The studio would have been fine had he gone over budget, but... For him, it was it was a matter of pride that he was going to not take advantage of the studio and do a great show. I mean, we got nominated for 10 Emmys our first season, and John insisted. And he would say to myself and the, the line producer, um, if we can't afford it, let me know and I'll rewrite it. I'll change it. I'll change it so that, you know, it works. This is the problem solving outside the box. If, if you do not have money, then you're going to have to you're going to have to find some alternative as i said outside the box and you you can't compromise the story 
while you're solving your time or or money problem. One of the things that I took away from the two of you that, again, I still use to this day, and sometimes it's frustrating because I can't get the showrunners to understand it, is that we control the script. If it's raining suddenly in a scene that's not tied into anything, we don't have to go to cover. We can just write a line that says, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting rain. And you can play the scene in the rain. You don't have to because it rains places. Yeah. You know, in certain On certain shows, it never rains, period, because they go to rain cover every time it rains. I would rather say, write a line that says, oh, geez, it was sunny when we went in. It's raining coming out now. I didn't expect that. And then just keep on with the work. If it doesn't, if it doesn't impact the overall story, you know, yeah, hey man, we, yeah. we got to do this efficiently. Let's let let's get let's get the less important stuff in the can so that we can focus all of our time, energy, and money yeah. on the important scenes. Yeah, and and again, I remember, I remember, um, Gil and FA would get together when when a a preliminary budget was too high, and they would just go to you and say, okay, here are the elements. It's not a warehouse now; it's out in a field. You know, yeah, same yeah, scene, yeah, exact yeah, same yeah, scene, right, right. exact same scene with no set dressing, with nothing else, but you still get the work. You still get the emotional beats. You still get the story points across. And we would go through the script and, and in essence, as we used to put it, rather than seeing this, you're seeing this. Right, right. And, and really, that's the significant difference. It's, it's and if you have to, you, you see this and, and you fake this. Yeah. And you also give the audience the, the opportunity to make up this when you're shooting this. They they fill in the rest of it on their own. Of course they do. And you know? and you yeah, they the audience, so long as the story is compelling, they they will forgive a multitude of, of production of, of the lack of the money because you're filling it in a thousand other ways. And and what impressed me most, um, you know, we did demonite, obviously, and you guys have talked about that. But once we got into that next season of Tales from the Crypt, when we set up in Chatsworth, um, the one thing that, again, that I, I learned that I didn't know before that was how much time and energy goes into pre-planning before you actually start pre-production. Yeah. Now, when I think of the, the work that Gil and, and F.A. did in getting that space ready for us, I mean, it was a clothing factory, I think, when we yeah. found it. And, um, you know, it ended up being a great space. And it um, it it served our purposes very well, but again, it taught me that you don't have to go to a studio. You can the the way you approach it um, doesn't have to be inside the box. And we were able to do it at the price we did because of all these other little elements. Mm. And it's difficult sometimes when you're working with studios who insist on you being on the lot or doing their thing. Because I've always loved the um, the warehouse model. Just because it, it allowed us so much freedom to to do what we needed to do. And on on Tales, especially, you know, after we did Demon Knight um, and we had to do the season of Tales, um, I remember the thing I remember most about that season was how many people, A, were happy that the show got another season and how many calls we would get cold called on actors that wanted to do the show. You know, I mean, and and the mo the the one that stands out the most for me was when um, Slash from Guns N' Roses. You know, do you remember that? I mean, one, yeah, of our grips, yeah, yeah. one of our grips comes up to me and goes, hey, Slash from Guns N' Roses, friend of mine, he wants to do the show. I'm like, get the fuck out of my office. Just get out of here, you know? And he goes, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. I go, okay, then have him call me. Sure, whatever. Have him call me. If that's true, have him call me. 
two hours later, the phone rings. And, hey, man, this is Slash. Well, my buddy Dave said I should call you. And uh, Even that had a guy named Dave. It's like a big fan of the show. Big fan of the show. I'd love to do it. My buddy it. Dave, man. I hung up on him the first time. I thought they were fucking with me. I hung up. He called me back. And he's like, no, I'm telling the truth, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if you remember, but, you know, um, I said, okay, then come on in today at 6 p.m. And I go into Gil's office and I said, hey, supposedly Slash from Guns N' Roses. And he showed up. He yeah. showed up with his girlfriend. And you guys didn't have a role for him. He said, we'll make one up for him. You know, we'll write one for him. It was Vince Spano's episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we did. He, he was uh, a competing uh, DJ. He worked two days. He showed up all five. I don't know if you remember that. He showed up all five days to hang out. Yeah, no, he he, he just loved he does love being there. He was and, yeah. and not in, in any way imposing. He he no. just he just, just he just loved being part of yeah he just that. wanted to hang out you know and and I remember I remember going to Gil's office and saying Guns and Roses the lead guitarist from Guns and Roses wants to do our show and, and Gil is like we'll write something for him then we'll write something for him <laughs> uh, again it was just one of those remarkable things that that uh, that happened on Tales from the Crypt where where we just kept getting to work with the most remarkable people. And they would call us. I mean, that's the thing that I'm getting at. They would, they, we would field calls from agents saying, Hey, our, our client wants to do your show or, you know, you know, funny, my, for whatever reason, my, my prep music, as I was in the shower earlier, I was listening to, to Tommy, the, the I really wanted to hear the underture of Tommy. It's really, really good. But, you know, we, Got a, a huge, huge Who fan, and getting to work with Roger Daltrey, which, right. which was uh, that was before your time, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the post, I, I was in the editing room with you guys cool. on that episode. Yeah. yeah, getting to work with Roger Daltrey was so exciting. I mean, my God, he was such a cool guy. Now, on the season that Roger Daltrey worked, uh, my brother-in-law uh, Mark Norris uh, was on the show, uh, craft services, but also special projects. We you know, we we had a little money in the budget, so you know, we we would occasionally do food things for 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 the crew. We we would bump up a little special craft services thing, and, and Mark did that. And so Mark had a little station there at at our studio in Santa Monica, uh, and he he would make tea every day. And when Roger Daltrey came into the set, and he saw that uh, the craft services guy was an English guy who had real proper English tea bags on, on that table, damn it, and made proper tea. Well, every day that Roger Daltrey worked, he would go hang out at tea time with Mark Norris. And, uh, nice. oh, they would sit there and, and talk footy. Uh, oh, what whatever, whatever. And funny thing. Now, uh, my, my wife is English consequently and uh, she would come to visit well hey roger daltrey <laughs> well, would you not come visit the set of roger daltrey's there's some my wife strangely came to visit the set more often than usual uh like like lucy ricardo so, I, worked in, I worked in florida for four four years my wife came only one time and that's when we had chippendales dancers on the stage <laughs> they're, they're so obvious they're so obvious so so my wife comes to visit the set visiting her brother and uh, so as far as Roger Daltrey is concerned, this is uh, his, you know, the, the, the craft services guy's sister, who's you know, an attractive dancer, a, a ballet dancer. And, and so he begins to hit on her. And uh, at one point, you know, m my wife thought, well, how can I not? 
And finally, my my brother-in-law broke it to to, to Roger that, that that this was the the producer's wife. You might want you might not want to go here. <laughs> That's yeah, quite yet. And so, yet he went, so he went direct. So he went directly to the source and hit on Alan and me. No, no. <laughs> exactly. And uh, oh boy, I, I'm sure we let him down. That's funny. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, yeah. Slash, yeah. We we we, we get to work with just the the, the coolest people. Um, do you guys remember? Do you guys remember during Demon Night why we had to shut down shooting one day early? During Demon Night, all right, hold, hold on. Okay, during Demon Night, one day we had to we, we ended up wrapping at five thirty, and we were supposed to wrap at nine p.m. because something was happening. No, what happened? The OJ chase. <sighs> Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the crew was so into it. We we had that. We literally couldn't, couldn't keep working because people were just glued to the television in the was, makeup. Trailer. Was that was it? Was that the reason? Yeah. 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 We ended up because the crew was just the, the headspace was so screwed up that I remember Gil coming on to say, yeah, we'll just we'll just start over tomorrow. We were we we're on schedule. We were a little ahead. And Gil was like, "No, we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna keep going. We're, we're just gonna cut it." Completely forgot that. Remember that, Gil? I mean, we had to, we had to. I do remember that. I do yeah. remember. Did, were you with us when, when um, we closed down because and and FA gave us a gun to take home? Um, oh, there were the riots yes. coming up. Yes, from, absolutely. From yes, during the riots. Yes, during the riots. And FA came into my office, closed the door, and he said, "We're closing early." And um, you know, I'm telling you, we're closing early. I'm not asking you. And also, here, I want you to take this. And he pulls out a like I don't know what caliber because I don't know much about guns. It's a and 45. Said, and I said, Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I said, What? What do you mean, take it? What am I supposed to do with it? He goes, Just keep it, keep it hidden on the seat of your car. Don't let anyone see it because that in itself is an offense. If a cop says, <laughs> Yeah, they'll arrest you. And I go, I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to take a gun. He goes, No, no. If somebody attacks the car, you'll you you can protect yourself. And I go. F.A., what, what are you talking about? And he said, and then tonight at home, keep it next to the bed. <laughs> I said, it I was won't a be crazy able to couple of days. That, that was, it was just, it was, it was chaos. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was bad. I, yeah. I remember watching yeah. Reginald Denny getting beaten on the TV in my office at Crypt. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I have a vivid memory of standing there in shock watching. Wow. Yeah. Watching really chaos erupt. Yeah. In our city, uh, and yeah, and, commenting and, on something you said before. Co uh, uh, co commenting on something you said before, before I got disconnected once again yeah, about yeah. sometimes being doing things on a studio costing more money. I had a situation where I needed keys, and I'm not sure what show it was on. It might have been with Tails, but we were getting keys for the studio, and I said to my, I think I said to someone, get get the keys made off the lot. And the studio heard about this and got crazy. And they said, no, no, keys have to be made on the lot. And I said, well, I can get a key made for a dollar and a half. And you're charging me $5 a key. Whoa. So I'm getting them made off the lot. And they, they went crazy. And, and I, I said, I'm, I'm going to take the show off the lot. I'm going to go to a warehouse. I'm, I mean, I went nuts. And the, and the resolution was they agreed to charge me $1.50 a, a, a key as I could get off the lot. But I couldn't tell anyone that, that they were doing that. And I had to make sure I stayed on the lot. Same thing happened with Xeroxing. Yeah. Oh, it, it was wild. It was no, really I, wild. I, it's, it's a gouge. It's, it's a fucking gouge. It's ludicrous.
It's it's yeah. it's something they call soft money, and it's it's maddening because they'll they'll take from one pocket to give to the other, and yet it goes against your yeah. budget, and you can't control it. You know, and it's right. it's frustrating. It's very frustrating sometimes because right. and you'll have to take that out of your budget somewhere else. Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. And not only that, but the yeah. you know the grip and electric prices are higher than they should be. You know, it's, it 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 runs a whole gamut. You're forced to use their stuff. You know, so it's a very different way of working. We couldn't have done Tales from the Crypt if we were, had to be tied to a studio. Oh, we could not have done it. No, we couldn't have. No, no, no way, no way, no, no way. Yeah, because your hands get tied in so many ways by all the feather bedding. Yeah, exactly. That you are exactly. forced. To, you're forced to eat. The other thing I keep coming back to, especially that um, that that uh, with both Demon Knight and that first season of Tales that I actually got to be with you guys from the beginning, is seeing how you guys put together the crew members how you guys hired people that moved on and and how important it was for you guys to have them meet with other people to make sure that everybody gelled. I, I remember that being so important for you guys in terms of, it wasn't just the resume. It wasn't how good they were. I remember Steve Melton moved on at some point, you know, cause he was getting big features and yeah. you guys wanted their prop master. And I remember the process that you guys went through. I was very, it was new to me seeing um, because I, I didn't know production all that well at that point still. You know, and um, seeing how you guys went the extra level to make sure that they gelled with the production designer and with the set decorator um, has has stayed with me and and made me look, maybe maybe research people a little more, do the due diligence. Yeah. Like when I do due diligence now, I don't ask producers. I ask other crew members, mm. you know, because the producers oftentimes don't know. I mean, if I need to know how good a first AD is, I'll ask the key grip or the gaffer you know, who were on set with him, you know, all the time, you know, yeah. and, and it, it, it's funny how so many really bad people keep working and it's because people don't do their due diligence. Yeah. You know, when we, when we did that, I mean, we never thought of it as being unique or, or, or anything, but kind of obvious to do it that way. And, and we never really, you know, we never questioned it and we never, we would just look at each other and go, okay, let's, let's ask the guy that might know more about the situation than we know. And, you know, what do we know about going to another producer? What what are his goals? What are his interests? We'd rather go to see somebody who's, you know, who's been on the floor with the guy or has worked with him or has been in, it's, in, the, there's in, chemistry. in the trenches. It, there's, it's chemistry is yeah. so important. And, and yes, hey, there are people who are incredibly talented, magnificent skill sets. They're so impossible to work with. Exactly. Yeah. And, and again, it stayed with me and his, it has guided me. Um and, and I think it's one of the reasons, I mean, I've been really fortunate with the crews I've gotten to put together. I mean, I've, I've had to work in Texas, in Georgia, in Atlanta, um, in, in South Florida, in both Miami and, and Fort Lauderdale. And each of those times, I always go back to what you guys uh, taught me in terms of just the cohesiveness and the camaraderie is just as important as the skill set. Because when you get in trouble, when you're in that 13th hour, you don't need people that are shitty to one another. You need people that are genuinely looking out for one another. And mm. if you need to do a, a fast move that you need to get done in 15 minutes, you can't have, you know, a grip that's going to say, you know what, that's an electrician's job. I'm not going to move that stand. As opposed to everybody hanging in, you know, jumping in together like we used to do on tails. You know, I remember moving sandbags. I remember, you know, whatever it took, you know. When, and, when the meter's and, running and, and you got you got to yeah. get the shot in, then, hey, it, yeah. there's. I remember oh, Lee Webb. I remember Lee Webb lifting tents. You know, I remember the second AD taking uh, cast chairs 
you know, whatever it took. There was no sense of that's not my job. I'm not a part of it. No, and we, no, no. We, we were all in this together. Yeah. And we had to teach the, the English crew that, if you remember, when we got to London, we had to teach them. It's like, no, but this is one unit. You know, everybody has to work together. And it's 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 frustrating sometimes when I can't hire somebody that I know is great, where I have to take somebody that is going to be a problem. And eventually those people end up getting replaced because one of the things I say all the time is you can't fool a crew. No a crew knows when somebody is not pulling their weight, they get resentful and it gets ugly really quickly. It's a team. And, yeah. you know, everyone knows who's pulling, pulling in the same direction and everyone knows who's not. The other thing from that first season of Tales that I really was, was life-changing almost was seeing how good some of these technicians were. Mm-hmm. Seeing what Rick Boda could do with light and seeing what Greg Melton could design in a week and, and seeing how um, our set decorator could take this empty box and one week it's a doctor's office, the next week it's the interior of someone's house, the week after that it's a college classroom. I mean, just the sheer speed and talent of these people blew me away because I'd never been around it again. One one could take it for granted, the fact that this is how how it always is supposed to be, how 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 yeah. every show is. And look, the this industry is filled with very, very, very talented people all over the place. It 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 takes a, a special kind of crazy in the best way possible to to pull off a successful anthology. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's everything has to be outside the box, all the solutions. And as, as you, you pointed out in, in, in season one, that uh, uh, you, you said it was you found it it's more interesting to work on a TV show than it is on a feature film. It's more creatively rewarding. For me, it is. For me, yeah. other people maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But I was I was very fortunate to get to assist Gill on the features Constantine and Starsky and Hutch, and Starsky and Hutch was a lot of fun. It was my first job back after you know you know a, a, a tragedy in my life, and it was fun. I mean, it, there was there was problems on it, but on Constantine, as I tried to help Gill as much as I could, but I was freaking bored because it was this big feature with a lot of visual effects. And it was, um, you know, when when Gil came on board, it was wildly over budget Mm. and they wanted to start shooting in like seven weeks. And Gil continually told them, we'll be there. We'll get there. And I think we started like at one hundred and five million. And by the time we started shooting, I think it was around 90 or 91. And. um, Some days were three eighths of a page and it was all visual effects. You know, it was it was, you know, Keanu being pulled, you know, on a string all day. And it was like, oh, And the movie ended up great, but I was just bored. I was just bored working on it because once you set it up, it's just basically execution. And for Gil, it was, it was hard. It was busy, you know, because trying to keep track of costs, trying to stay on schedule. But, you know, Francis Lawrence was a good director. Philippe Rousselot was a great DP and they were able to do it. But where did you shoot? um... It was here in LA. It was here. It was here in and around Los Angeles and the Warner Brothers lot. And they built some incredible sets. And that was the first time I saw that kind of money being spent. I remember Gil oversaw the building of a set on Warner Brothers' largest stage of the uh, future hellscape, the future hell. Mm. And it was a um, it was a uh, a freeway in hell with burnt out cars, and they augmented it with visual effects. 
but this entire massive set was built for like a five-page scene and that was it that was it for the whole movie and it was probably i i can't put words on it but i'm guessing it was a million dollar set i'm just guessing i don't remember you know the budget but it was for five like five shooting days that was it and I'd never seen that before to think that a set, one set cost double what, you know, an episode of tales cost was crazy to me. That's, you know? that's, that's, since we have this moment, are, are you back with us, Gil? I am. Oh, good, good, good. Since, since we have this moment as, as we're, as we're cobbling this show together because of, of technical difficulties, uh, uh, yes, this show will go out at, 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 at uh, this is a good moment to, to remind everyone that, uh, two weeks from yesterday, on December seventeenth. All right, if this, if you're hearing this in in before December seventeenth, on December seventeenth at noon Pacific time, we're going to be doing uh, our table read for charity for the Motion Picture Home. Oh, nice. Uh, yes, we're 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 going to read. We're doing a table read of Dead Easy. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And, and at an adapt an adaptation of Dead Easy, we've converted it into a radio play because God, God, no one wants to listen to to a screenplay that wasn't finished for two hours because it was, it was, we, we did not get, we never got to finish that screenplay. Right. Right. You know, we, we were three weeks away from, from beginning, uh, you know, principal when, when universal pulled the plug and said, no, you're going to go to start this other movie in three weeks, as we all know. Right. Uh, so we're, we're going to do a reading of the, of dead easy, long rumored, finally found, and uh, we've got a, a really good cast. Actually, the Crypt Keeper will be uh, emceeing. Oh, nice. Very nice. Uh, the Crypt Keeper is emceeing, and John Kassir is also going to play the villain. You remember the Harlequin character? I do. I do. Very John's much. Gonna, so John's going to play the Harlequin. Uh, we have, uh, gosh, we have Jake Busey so far. Nice. Uh, oh, and I'm going to, of course, forget all the people, the great people that we have. So, oh, yeah, I'll just put my glasses on. We have Jake Busey. We have, uh, we have Brett Cullen. We have Lisa Zemeckis uh, and John. And we're waiting for two other actors to respond. So we've got a really good cast so far. I wonder if Brett would remind, remember me. He and I played uh, a lot of softball together in the 80s and early 90s. His nickname was Cowboy back in the day. I like well, Brett very much. I worked with him back when he did the Thornbirds in like 81 or 82. Huh. Small world. Hey, teeny, teeny, tiny. So yeah. so we're going to be doing that in, in uh, uh, two weeks from yesterday. If you're listening to this after the 17th, you can always go to, of course, to our our, uh, our channel, to our, our YouTube channel, to our Patreon page, to our blog site. And there you can you can access uh, the, the reading after the after the fact after the fact after the fact, please make your donation first on our system to uh, <laughs> to the M to the motion picture home the MPTF they really really do need your money they're going through great hardships and God what they do for film folk like us is fantastic so nice Good uh, all right I'll get down off my soapbox uh, actually Ed you know we we've had you for an hour and a half. Uh, we just started. <laughs> you know, here, here, here's what we're going to do. We're, of course, we're going to have you back because we've but scratched the surface and all the stuff that we all, the three of us, could talk about. The technical difficulties have have, have been a challenge, but I think we've we've risen above them. Uh, I would love to talk about Crypt in London in greater detail. Uh, let's do that on on a on a, a, a subsequent episode sure. that we all sure. do. Whenever. And what we'll try to do is we'll try to pull in for a little while and that we'll try to pull in Glenn. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, and we, you know, we, and it would have been great if we could have pulled off getting Glenn for this because you know, this was talking about what makes a great assistant. Yeah. And in the same way that, you know, we found Ed and Ed became more than just an assistant, an essential part of the team. Uh, when we went to England and, 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 and did a season of television script in England, uh, we found an Ed. <laughs> we found an English Ed yeah. named Glenn. And, and the story of Glenn is, is, oh, there's all kinds of fun stuff. It would be great if we could get Glenn. He, he's living in, in uh, Sweden. Sweden now. He's in Sweden, yeah. Yeah, and his life has taken some strange twists and turns. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I jokingly call him, uh, you know, the closest I, the closest person I know to Forrest Gump. Not in the fact that he's slow or anything like that, like Forrest was, but just his life experiences. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, Glenn, where are you? He'd be on a red carpet somewhere. Where are you? I'm in China. I'm in, you know, I'm in South Africa. I'm producing a movie. I'm directing a movie. I mean, it's it's amazing for, you know, 10 years there. My first question to him when I'd reach him or text him is, where are you? Yeah. Because he's yeah, never yeah, in the yeah. same place for a long period of time. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we will do next time. We, we, will, we, we will do the three of us and we will, we will bring Glenn in. We'll, we'll arrange for that ahead of time. I promise you, audience, you will enjoy this. There, there, this Glenn is fascinating, and he, he's a very creative guy in his own right. He's a he's a filmmaker and, and, a, and a terrific writer, and just a, a delightfully unassuming presence. Yeah. Uh, oh, he's. I'm still I'm still tight with his folks, and I was in London last year. I stayed with his mom and dad. Still, yeah. they wouldn't so, let me. They wouldn't let me stay in a hotel. Uh, a treat awaits you, everyone. Uh, we're we're going to end this one right here. Uh, we thank you all, as always, for 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 spending time with us. Uh, um, maybe next, and maybe next time the Canadian Zoom might work. <laughs> hey, we could all get lucky. Uh, thank you, everyone, and see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.